Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coins, hell bro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck all the system, cause we above the system. We keep Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. Barack upped up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
cost LA County at least $100 million, all funded by taxpayers. Next slide. Government agencies such as the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, Offices of Independent Review, all the way up to the federal level have known about deputy gangs for decades, but no action has been taken. Next slide. There have been no meaningful internal investigations, no significant policy changes to address the issue. Next slide. Patterns of deputy gang violence against community members. Next slide. Raids, illegal detainments and arrests, physical assaults, planting and manipulation of evidence. Next slide. Harassment of victims, family members and members of the press, such as myself, and of course, killings of civilians. Next slide. I want to show you how the culture metastasizes throughout the department, so I've put together a case study, um, but I want to give a bit of background first. Once deputies graduate from the academy, they move on to the jails where they do the next part of their training. Then they move on to patrol at a station. There are at least four known gangs inside of the Los Angeles County Jail system. The most popular one is styles themselves as the 3,000 boys. But deputy violence inside the jails looks like beatings, sometimes to the point of death, rape, next slide, tasers to the genitalia, OC spray or pepper spray to the genitalia and eyes, next slide. Uh, there have been patterns also of deputy violence and harassment of other LASD personnel that looks like mockery on social media, falsifying reports, denying promotions, threatening murder, and even committing drive-bys on their homes, next slide. This is an example of mockery that was posted on social media regarding a whistleblower who attempted to draw attention to a deputy gang called the Banditos. It's captioned, wanted to be a bandito, but I'll settle for Rat Crew King. Underneath it, you'll see a dead rat that was placed on this deputy's personal property. Next slide. Now let's get into the case study. In 2010, Christopher Lee Wilder's jaw is broken by Deputy Jay Brown inside of Men's Central Jail. On December 11, 2011, Deputy Samuel Aldama beats Alquan Jackson, who was incarcerated inside MCJ. Both of these deputies are alleged 3,000 boys associates. Next slide. 2015, Brian Paquette is killed by de deputies Rene Berrigan, Ryan Rothrock, and others. All are alleged to be Spartan associates. April 10, 2015, Tayshawn Gaither is shot by Jay Brown and others. All are alleged to be Spartan's associates. Next slide. January 15, 2016, Samuel Aldama and Ms. Renarego beat and falsely imprisoned Sheldon Lockett. Both deputies are tattooed executioners, as you can see on the left. Next slide. March 16, 2016, Christian Medina is shot and killed by Renee Berrigan, who killed Brian Pickett and Jay Brown, and who shot Tayshawn Gaither. Both deputies are alleged to be Spartans associates. Next slide. August 25, 2016, Samuel Aldama and Ms. Renarego shoot and kill Dante Taylor. August 16, 2017, Kenneth Lewis is killed by Ryan Rothrock, who also killed Brian Pickett. Next slide. November 2, 2017, Ricardo Sendejas Jr. is killed after he is seen by Deputy Samuel Aldama and others holding a gun at his home. Aldama, again, is a tattooed executioner. All others are alleged Spartan associates. Next slide. In total, that's three assaults, one non-fatal shooting, and five deaths across three deputy gangs. All of the deputies that I've spoken to you about appear to be still employed by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and some have even been promoted. Next slide. We're talking about this stuff as it relates to gangs, but again, it emulates throughout the culture in the Sheriff's Department. Gangs are a symptom of the culture. In cities like Compton, contracts are given to LASD by city 
for law enforcement services, and they're unfulfilled. One way we see that is that cars will be marked as out on patrol when in reality they are stationary and parked. The city is still charged for that patrol. Emily Elena Dugdale at KPCC LAS found that LASD deputies present in Antelope Valley schools stop and question black teens up to four times as often as their peers. At least one incident where a deputy physically assaulted a child was circulated on social media. Next slide. Deputies also use a practice called hunting, where they look for someone to arrest to get a statistic. Deputy Angel Reynosa described it to me as utilizing the traffic code to stop people of color for minor violations. Deputies will also take advantage of people who do not know their rights. Next slide. Deputy Gregory Van Hosen killed 16-year-old A.J. Weber in February of 2018. That case was settled for over $3 million. Now, I'll also mention that deputies are rarely financially liable for this because of qualified immunity. 18 months later, Van Hosen killed 22-year-old Jamal Simpson. It's unclear if Van Hosen was ever disciplined for either of those killings, and he is still employed by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Next slide. LASD continues to avoid accountability, and we see this in multiple ways, from Sheriff Villanueva asking the county to ban the use of the term deputy gangs, all the way up to refusing to comply with subpoenas and evading California Public Records Act requests. Next slide. We've also seen cosmetic fixes, like banning some logos, such as the Fort Apache logo, which was actually placed in the floor of the East Los Angeles station. It was brought back in 2018 by current Sheriff Alex Villanueva. The firing and hiring of deputies is not public, and there are currently no tools to effectively combat deputy gangs. Current policies only target new recruits and do nothing about existing gang members. Next slide. We've, of course, seen doublespeak from Sheriff Alex Villanueva. He has consistently said that there are no deputy gang members in the department, but also that these groups exist in every police department. That, of course, is impossible. Next slide. Let's uh, forward again one more time, please. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just finish off by saying that LASD structure promotes deputy gangs. Classic example is seen under Sheriff Lee Baca, who promoted Paul Tanaka, a tattooed member of the white supremacist Vikings gang, who was his undersheriff. Cecil Rambo, who was friends with Mr. Tanaka for years and is alleged to be associated with deputy gangs himself, is currently running for sheriff. Uh, current Sheriff Alex Villanueva reinstated Deputy Karen Mandoyan, who was fired for domestic violence. Deputies throughout the department routinely disregard policies and mandates. And another big threat to public safety is uh, media coverage. Next slide, please. Now, since my reporting uh, was published, we are seeing the term deputy gangs widely used in media and local government, as you can see in this GIF. Next slide, please. But there still remains a lot of work to do. My conclusions um, widely stated are there, these are deputy gangs, these are criminal, problematic personnel are retained and promoted, and finally, deputy gangs are a symptom of a larger correct, corrupt culture. For more information on this, I encourage you all to visit lasdgangs.com, where you can view my reporting in depth, as well as the database, which lists all deputy gang members and associates. Uh, I thank the task force so much for their time today. Thank you so much, Therese Castle, for your expert testimony and the work that you're doing on this effort. So we'll now turn to Tasha Hinneman. Tasha Hinneman, you may begin your expert testimony. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Chair Moore and esteemed members of the AB 3121 Task Force. I'm Dr. Tasha Henneman, and I'm honored to be here to share my research regarding preschool expulsions and suspensions and the impacts on young black boys and their families and how exclusionary and harsh uh, discipline in early childhood can lead to the preschool or prison um, pipeline. Next slide, please. Um, in 2015, Walter Gilliam from Yale University conducted a nationwide study of preschool expulsions and found that preschoolers are expelled at rates three times more frequent than their K-12 students. Um, additionally, uh, research later determined uh, that there was disproportionality with the three Bs. You can go to the next slide, please. Um, the three Bs being boys who are, who are black, who are bigger in stature and uh, physical size, Next slide, please. Um, I want to just take a quick moment to define expulsions and suspensions. When I refer to expulsions, this is the permanent removal of a child from an early childhood setting. We're talking about two, three, four, or five-year-olds in this case. Um, a soft expulsion, or as I refer to in my research, is a push-out, and this is when an early child care program constantly is communicating with a family about the child and complaining about the child's behavior, and so then the family and child begin to feel unwelcome, uh, and usually the family ends up leaving or feels like they have to leave um, because they're getting ready to get, the child is getting ready to get kicked out. We have in-school suspensions. These occur when a child is sent out of the classroom, usually to a director's office, for example. And then out-of-school suspensions, and this is when families or caregivers get called to pick up their child early because of behavioral problems like biting, hitting, or not following directions. Next slide, please. So more data from Gilliam's research found that four-year-olds were 50% more likely to be expelled than three-year-olds. Boys represent 54% of preschoolers, but 78% of the suspensions. And black preschoolers are 3.6 times more likely to be suspended than their white peers and five times more likely, excuse me, to be expelled, um, and five times more likely to be expelled than their Asian peers. And this research really garnered the attention of the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights Data Collection back in 2011 and 2012, who compiled data from 97,000 public schools and uh, 16,500 16, districts representing 49 million students nationwide. And their 2014 report found that black children represent 19% of preschoolers, but 47% of the suspensions. Next slide, please. So how frequently is this phenomenon of preschool expulsions or suspensions happening daily? I encourage any of you to take a guess. Next slide, please. Um, the answer is really too many, 250 um, national uh, daily average uh, preschool expulsions and suspensions. So next slide, please. Um, our current system of early childhood educational services falls short in various ways. It is characterized by lack of integration of services and systems uh, that support the whole child. And given that preschool expulsions are a systems issue, I examined factors that perpetuated the problem or perpetuate the problem, in my opinion, specifically these identified in my conceptual framework, which I viewed through a critical race theory lens. So you have the high-stakes accountability movement, and this really refers to the standardized testing in the K through 12 system that is used to measure student achievements, student ratings, administer rewards or consequences and discipline formulated from the No Child Left Behind Act of 
2001. But the spiral effects of the high-stakes accountability movement is translated as school readiness in early childhood, raising the expectations of behavior and learning for two- to five-year-olds to be more academically prepared, really impacting the loss and importance of play in learning. And we know that systems of teaching to the test not only disrupt organic forms of learning, but can also create bias in teachers' perceptions of students, further widening the gap between affluent children and low-income or minority children in the areas of achievement, graduation rates, levels of suspensions and expulsions, and also alters student-teacher relationships, which are so important in early childhood. Advances in brain development research have revealed the importance of young children experiencing regular stimulation and interaction with parents, caregivers, and their environments to optimize their social-emotional development. And further, exposure to trauma or chronic stress, such uh, caused by harsh discipline, can make children more prone to emotional disturbances and less able to learn because they have to uh, they have overactive neural pathways that control the fear response, causing their brains to be organized primarily for survival. And when emotions are poorly regulated, they can interfere with attention and decision-making, ultimately affecting behavior. The ECE workforce is not comparable to the K-12 through workforce. Uh, wage parity, health insurance benefits, and other mental health supports for ECE educators is lacking. Additional important deep-rooted issues of culture, race, values, beliefs, and attitudes are not prioritized in training. And these inequities contribute to high turnover rates in the field, which really affect the importance of the continuity of care in early childhood education. Lastly, uh, there are many factors that can contribute to home life challenges for young children. We heard many of them today from previous experts. Um, homelessness, uh, th these types of issues are often not considered in early education policy development, one being that of incarcerated parents. Um, an estimated 90,000 children in California have a parent or caregiver incarcerated, and of the nearly 2 million minor children in the United States with currently incarcerated fathers, the majority are under the age of 12. And these children inherit the trauma of systemic oppression. And studies show that black students are hurt most by parental uh, incarceration, with estimates suggesting that cumulatively one in 25 white children and one in four black children that were born in 1990 had experienced parental imprisonment by their 14th birthday. And on any given school day, approximately 10% of black school children have a parent who is in jail or in prison. Next slide, please. So most of us can recall our early childhood experiences um, pre-kindergarten. We were probably in one or two different settings. And this is a snapshot of some of the young boys who were in my research study. And um, as you can see, some of them experienced being in nine programs in four years, ten programs in, you know, uh, less than five years. And... Um, these young boys were expelled or pushed out for several reasons, including talking back, not talking nicely, not sharing, being overly emotional, being too hyper or too loud, hitting, not napping with the group or problems sleeping, explosive behavior, not listening, not standing in line, not sitting properly to eat lunch, moving around too much, not sitting still in circle time, screaming, being difficult to soothe, using bad language or the inability to get along with others, and reasons that were unclear to the parents. 
And the consequences to their behavior resulted in isolation, exclusion, their names being put on the board repeatedly, uh, policing of their bodies, as I refer to it too, in quotes, uh, not being able to sit crisscross applesauce or stay on the, the square rug, uh, sent to other areas of the room. They were shamed and negatively labeled. Next slide, please. And just to give one example of this, uh, one of the boys, Sultan, this isn't his real name, but uh, at four years old, he was in a center where he was having, um, the, the program was having a lot of problems with his high energy. And Sultan was adopted from Ethiopia around the time when he was eight months. He was abandoned previously. He was adopted. He was brought to this country, and he um, had a lot of developmental delays physically, and he made a lot of great strides in the first, uh, you know, three to four years of his life, but he did have high energy, and um, we know that some of his behavioral issues stemmed from the trauma that he experienced when he was younger. Well, the mother, Fulton's mother, uh, was having multiple, multiple calls uh, dis disrupting her work from the program, so she decided to show up to the preschool center unannounced, and it happened to be nap time. All the kids were napping in the room. Sultan's mom walks in. She looks on the floor, and she's like, okay, I don't see Sultan. Where's my son? And the teacher's like, oh, come here. He's over here. Let me show you. She opens a door, a closet door, which um, was a cubby, uh, where the cubbies were, where they keep their backpacks and their items. And Sultan pops up and is like, mommy, mommy, it's dark in here. I'm by myself. I'm scared. And the mother was like, why is my son put in a closet with the door closed and not napping with the rest of the students? And the teacher said, well, the director is going to cut the door in half. Essentially, this was their solution to uh, Sultan not napping with the other children, which is completely um, irrespective of his trauma in the past, developmentally appropriate, that some kids just stop napping at three, four years old. Next slide, please. So this chart indicates the vicious cyclical process that children and families went to based on harsh discipline tactics. Um, I won't go through every one for, for the sake of time, but on the next slide, please, um, this one leads us to the preschool to prison uh, pipeline. So a report by the Equal Justice Society explains that students removed from the school environment fall behind academically, are at higher risk of getting in trouble, feel stigmatized when they return to school, and are more likely to drop out, never obtaining high school diplomas. This is why they are easily led down the path of criminal justice system. When daily occurrences of isolation and labeling begin in early life at such a crucial formative time, these experiences can have such long-term effects, not only perpetuating negative self-images of the child, but negative images by their peers and by their adult educators. And labeling theory research supports that early labeling has the potential to stay with the children as they um, move into higher grades and in, within their higher education experiences, substantially increasing the chances of going to jail. So many of the boys in my research referred to themselves as the bad child, and the parents reported this negative self in deficit language um, occurring all the time. And so parents were constantly having to repair that deficit language. Parents also reported that their children's emotional and developmental um, regression started to occur, such as acting like a baby all the time, or many of the kids had regressions with potty training, um, 
due to um, the issues in their early learning environments. And consequently, this also led to a shift in the boys' attitude about going to childcare, which started off very positive and shifted to negative. As one parent described, after really liking going to school, my son hated going to school every day and he would cry. And according to the U.S. Department of Education's National Center for Education Statistics, the three common criteria often used for school readiness are student academic skill, development, attitude, and behavior. So with all of those being disrupted um, by this vicious, harsh discipline, um, next slide, please. We must uh, consider alterations to um, there is a history behind any social challenge of today, and given the time, I won't um, go into each of these, but I will say that prior to 1860 um, and even long after, education had been haphazard and a matter of life and death for black folks as provisions for education were not strongly enforced for all children. My father, who grew up in New Orleans, had to write fictitious notes as a young child uh, from Miss Anne in order to check out books from the library. This was only 70 years ago. And one day when he was uh, walking home with books in hand as a young boy, he was approached by three men and had his front teeth knocked out because he was told he wasn't allowed to read books. Again, that was 70 years ago. Next slide, please. So although we've seen progress, we still have a long way to go, and I would like to acknowledge that California has made some progress. In 2014, AB 420 mandated that students between kindergarten and third grade could not be suspended for willful defiance. Um, that legislation um, was enacted through 2018, and then at that point, the legislature and the governor extended the ban, um, the K-3 K through three ban permanently, which in 2019, Senator Skinner through SB 419 also um, extended that willful defiance, um, eliminating suspensions uh, uh, for low offenses like willful defiance through eighth grade. Um, and then in 2017, AB 752 by Rubio was the, one of the first preschool um, discipline bills, which really prohibited schools from expelling or unenrolling children without due process, without um, really supporting families in finding new location or referrals for a new location. Um, I'll also shout the California Commission on Teaching Credentialing in 2016 as they started to revise their statewide standards for teachers and administrators um, to promote student social and emotional growth and development and really look at restorative justice, conflict resolution practices, and culturally responsive um, pedagogical approaches. And lastly, at the California Department of Education, Superintendent Thurman has created an African-American Student Achievement Task Force. He's urged the governor to fund 10,000 mental health consultants and also has supported ECE curriculum to support more equitable early childhood environments for boys of color. Next slide. So I'll just leave you with these sets of recommendations. Um, we must invest in early childhood education. The National Forum on Early Childhood Policy and Programs has found that high quality early childhood programs can yield a four to nine dollar return on invest or per every one dollar invested. Um, and previous studies have even said that um, there is an estimated return to society of about seven to twelve dollars for each one dollar invested in early childhood. 
Um, there are crime effects by 2050, the savings to government and savings to society from reductions in criminality due to investments in ECE programs with total uh, $422 billion. Um, next slide, please. Additionally, we need to collect data on ECE expulsions and update our dashboards to include um, suspensions and expulsions from early childhood programs. We need to eliminate zero tolerance policies and harsh discipline tactics and require more training, as mentioned earlier. Next slide, please. We need to eliminate law enforcement on school campuses. As you see, things that happen on K through 12 campuses have an effect in early uh, childhood environments. Need to involve more fathers, recruit and retain more diverse ECE workforce. Next slide. And my last set of recommendations, partner with families and deploy family engagement strategies. Um, mandate lower teacher-student ratios in early childhood preschool programs. Next slide, please. So to conclude, disciplinary practices in early childhood settings that result in expulsions or suspensions is an adult issue. It perpetuates an inequity that has the potential to shatter the self-esteem and development of young black children, hindering their chances for positive social, emotional, and, ec and academic experiences in later schooling and life, thus building the initial groundwork leading to the preschool to prison pipeline. Instead of treating our youngest learners like criminals, early care systems need to develop more positive practices to help reconstruct the way that black children learn, are viewed, and are treated. We need to focus on strengthening student-teacher relationships and trust while prioritizing inclusive, equitable, and quality early learning environments. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Hinneman, for your informative expert testimony. We'll now turn to Nicole Porter. Nicole Porter, you may begin when you're ready with your expert testimony. Hi, good afternoon, and thank you so much for inviting me to testify before the task force. I am the Senior Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project, a national research and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. So it's, you know, an honor to participate in this conversation. The Sentencing Project has been doing work since the mid-80s to call out the racial disparities that are exacerbated uh, by criminal legal practices that lead to the overrepresentation of black residents in the prison system and among arrest and other parts of the criminal justice system. And addressing racial disparities and through this conversation, the reparative justice that might be possible is a part of a growing coalition of interests in this country and it's encouraging to be able to, um, you know, be a part of a conversation that has the potential to pioneer similar discussions in other states across um, the nation. So as a research organization, the Sentencing Project builds in data behind each statistic or person directly impacted by the intersection of race and justice in the U.S. Behind each percentage point is a black man disappeared behind the wall. Behind each number is a black child who will visit their mother in a prison visitation room. And behind each data set is a neighborhood like the million dollar blocks in Los Angeles and Oakland where incarceration can almost be a normative experience for um, its black residents. The prison population in the United States has declined by 11% in the past 10 years after reaching an all-time high in 2009. But that modest, that modest reduction follows a nearly 700% increase in the prison population between 1972 and 2009. As of year in 2019, one 
1.4 million persons were in U.S. prisons, an imprisonment rate unmatched worldwide. And you've seen um, how the U.S. compares in some of the earlier presentations this afternoon. At the uh, recent pace of decarceration, it will take nearly six decades to cut the U.S. prison population in half. Now, despite those modest reductions, California is among nine states that have reduced their prison population by 30% since it peaked in the mid-2000s. And yet the persistence of extremely punitive sentencing laws and policies, not increases in crime, sustain California and the nation's comparatively high prison rates. California is uniquely positioned to address the harms of mass incarceration, this conversation being a start to that, and also by continuing the sentencing reforms that have helped reduce the prison population over the last 15 to 16 years. That's leading to a current conversation around decommissioning prisons and directing public monies to community reinvestment that could be thought of as a reparative justice framework. That those monies could be redirected into social services targeted to reduce contact with the criminal legal system in the first place. Today, the descendants of the enslaved, who are in a very um, engaged conversation in the chat that I've been um, witnessing and, and monitoring over the last um, hour or so, the descendants of the enslaved are fighting for justice in a multiracial coalition to challenge the anti-black policies and practices that reinforce mass incarceration more than 150 years after the abolition of slavery. In fact, as some of the, my previous panelists mentioned, slavery was never fully abolished and a clause in the United States Constitution has allowed the criminal legal system to develop in a way that continues to marginalize and disappear black residents who are often not seen as fully human by criminal legal practitioners, from the police to parole board members, many of whom have too much power over people's lives. Shortly after the Civil War, slavery evolved into the black codes that criminalized certain behavior with the pretext of disappearing black residents to work the same plantations they were liberated from. Those systems of oppression evolved into Jim Crow, where additional legal and social norms reinforced the nation's racial caste system. Today, fighting against being disappeared by mass incarceration and against punitive policing that can result in extrajudicial killings is about fighting to be seen as fully human by the state. If criminal wasn't a proxy for black in the United States, solutions to crime and violence might have expanded social welfare rather than build more prisons. Violent crime did increase in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s, but it also increased in Germany and Finland. While the United States spent millions at the federal and state level on our carceral marshal plan to build more human to build more human warehouses, Germany and Finland expanded access to early childhood education and other social services to prevent contact with the criminal legal system in the first place. California has done some work recently to address the racial disparities in its prison system. Black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons across the country at nearly five times the rate of whites. Racial disparities in California's criminal legal system go beyond differences in criminal offending and stem from implicit bias in arrest, rates of conviction, and sentencing. As was mentioned earlier, the black-white disparity in California's prisons are more than 9 to 1 and is one of the highest in the nation. While racial disparities in arrest have, decre have decreased, they still persist statewide. Racial disparities in California arrests peaked in 1992 when the African-American arrest rate, the number of arrests per 100,000, 
African Americans was 3.6 times greater than the white arrest rate. Although these disparities have narrowed, in 2016, the African American arrest rate was three point was three times as higher than the white arrest rate. And black people in California comprise 6% of the general population, but 29% of the prison population. The efforts to address the systemic racism in the California's criminal legal system can be found in the 2020 Racial Justice Act, which prohibits prosecutors from seeking, obtaining, or imposing criminal convictions or sentences on the basis of race, ethnicity, or national origin. The law gives defendants an opportunity to challenge a range of discriminatory trial practices, including racial bias and jury selection, evidence that a judge, attorney, law enforcement officer, expert witness, or jury used racially discriminatory language or otherwise exhibited bias or animus towards the defendant at trial could establish a violation under this act, and the RJA allows defendants to prove that their conviction or sentences were racially motivated by presenting evidence that other people of color were more frequently charged with more serious offenses or received more severe sentences than white residents. That law builds on other decarceration reforms that have passed in recent years. Um, in 2021, the state passed several sentencing reforms, including efforts to limit the use of sentencing enhancements that allege gang crimes and codifies practices around patterns of criminal gang activities to lengthen prison terms. Also legislation to scale back the more than 150 sentencing enhancements that trigger certain factors, including prior convictions and gun possession during the commission of an underlying offense that may exacerbate and lengthen the time for the defendant in prison. Last year's legislative changes built on years of policy reforms. Previously, California approved ballot initiatives to curb the state's notoriously broad three strikes and your outlaw, and reclassified several property and drug offenses, allowing for the resentencing and release of a substantial number of incarcerated persons, reclassifying felonies to misdemeanor, not just having implications for time served, but also collateral consequences following a conviction. So there has been an effort to decarcerate and address sentencing practices in the state. And that has contributed to decarceration. While the prison population growth has slowed in recent years or even reversed in most states in the past 10 years due to sentencing reforms and early release mechanisms, California has not decommissioned prisons at the pace of other states experiencing similar population reductions. Although California is among states with comparatively high rates of decarceration, state officials announced unexecuted prison closures while opening new prisons and converting older prisons for new correctional uses. The California Rehabilitation Center with a design capacity of over 2,400 um, was scheduled to close in fiscal year 2015 through 2016 due to age and high operation costs, but it, it remains open today. Last year, the two, I'm sorry, one minute. Sorry, yes. Okay, last year, the dual uh, vocational institute, California's sixth oldest prison closed in 2021. And although uh, officials have recently announced the deactivation of the correctional, the California Correctional Center in Susanville, um, it remains open, although it is scheduled to close this year, according to reports. And uh, Governor Newsom has announced the decommissioning of several youth prisons. So for, because of time, I just want to say that other states like New York and Tennessee and Texas have actually moved to decommission 
prisons in their wake of uh, prison closures. And California should follow suit. And savings or the freeing up of resources associated with maintaining those prisons can help be redirected into a reparative justice strategy. Decommissioned prisons in Tennessee have been reused as a, as a whiskey distillery and event venue um, by a private developer. A decommissioned prison in Texas is being reused as a public for, as a public good as a part of a park conservatory. And the closed warehouse, the closed prison warehouse, will be reused for community space and um, as and as being. Um, redeveloped by local community members who have been directly impacted by mass incarceration. And I'll just wrap up my comments with, if money is reprioritized, is saved as a result of these um, prison closures, it frees up resources as a part of a repertory justice framework. So many of the previous panelists have focused on individual payments associated with a reparation strategy. There could be a community-based um, a, a repertory justice strategy as well. Rather than um, focusing resources within the criminal justice system, resources could be prioritized towards early childhood education to support um, mothers and single mothers in nurse family partnership programs, support their child care and parenting needs in the first year of their child's birth. Other interventions could be directed towards at-risk youth in therapeutic interventions under evidence-based programs that not just serve the youth but also their family members to help strengthen family connections and family support. And lastly, under a repertory justice framework, um, resources could be directed in, at the community level um, to prevent crime in the neighborhoods where people have been disappeared from um, over the last 30 to 40 years during the mass incarceration era. Addressing a community-level perspective would acknowledge that federal, state, and local government policies not directly concerned with crime, but strengthen the communities and help prevent crime in contact with the legal system in the first place. So I'll stop there, and I thank you so much for including me in the conversation this afternoon and hope to continue to be a resource to the task force as you all move forward. Thank you so much, Dr. Porter, for that incredible expert testimony and your recommendations. So we'll Woods for his expert testimony. Uh, Brendan Woods, you may begin when you're ready. Great, thank you. Can you see me? Great, okay, okay. I can't see myself, but thank you. Thank you for having me today and allowing me to um, testify. So I am simply here today to bear witness to what I see every day as a public defender, to what I've seen as a black man, and to why I do this work. I am the public defender of Alameda County. It is one of the oldest public defender offices in the nation. We were created in 1927, over 30 years before the Supreme Court case of Gideon versus Wainwright was decided. There have been eight public defenders before me. I am the ninth. I am the first person of color to hold this position the first black person to hold this position. Now that is appalling, considering it's Alameda County, Berkeley, Oakland, home of the Black Panthers, one of the most liberal parts of the state, nation, and it wasn't until 2012? That is appalling. And so for about five years, up until October of last year, 
I was the only chief black public defender in the state of California. Let that sit with you for a second. California has 58 counties. There are approximately 39 million people in California. A quarter million of them are lawyers. And there are only two black chief public defenders. It's absolutely shameful, especially when you consider the population we serve. But it is not shocking considering the history of America. So I do this work. I became a public defender because of my upbringing, because of what happened to me, because of what I saw happen to my community. So real quickly, my mom was a single parent. She was very young. She was in high school. You know, I personally have been stopped and harassed by the police more times than I can remember. One of my cousins was severely beaten by the police in New York. When he was in college, he suffered a traumatic brain injury. He never graduated, ended up on federal parole. Another cousin suffered from mental health issues. He began to self-medicate with meth and crack. He was deeply involved in the criminal legal system, and he ended up dead shortly after I became chief public defender. One of my uncles to help raise me was sentenced to 27 years in prison for armed bank robbery when I was a sophomore in college. So that's why I do this work. Then the thing is, my story is not particularly unique. Like so many black people in America, I've been proximate to the harm. I've been close to the harm. I've touched the harm that this criminal legal system does. The system is a testament to the legacy of slavery in this country. And I begin most of my talks with that introduction. But it seems so much more appropriate for today, considering the topic around reparations and the criminal legal system. This system has had an impact on every black person from getting the talk, the talk when you're a young child, from having those personal contacts with law enforcement, to having family members that have been harmed and removed from your life and community. This is what happens to black people in the United States and in California and with that being said, we have a complete lack of representation in jobs, make decisions about what is happening to our own people in this system. So many have said that slavery is not an aberration in American history. It is at the heart of our history. It is a main event. It is a central foundational story. And that is so true. It is so true. But if we stick with that only narrative, that narrative, we sell ourselves short. Because slavery is not a thing of the past. It is present. The criminal legal system is another form of control, another system of terror, and another system of slavery. The 13th Amendment tells us that, right? Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime. It did not make slavery illegal. It just gave it a different title. So I, I remember my very first day as a law clerk with our office and going to North County Jail to do interviews, to talk to our in-custody clients, and going through a locked door and a locked door and another locked door, and then seeing what was called a holding tank. And on the other side of this glass, in the size of a, would be a large living room, um, except without anything comfortable, cement blocks and uh, metal chairs. It was just a sea, and I mean a sea of black faces. About 30 to 40 black men, everyone was black. I, I remember being a younger deputy public defender and going to a massive criminal courthouse and the department and seeing black person after black person after black person come out from their custody holding cell to make their appearances. 
in that very same courtroom, you hear deputies uh, say to the judge, Your Honor, the bodies are here now. Or judges say, Can you bring the bodies down to court? Bodies. Now, I remember sitting in a courtroom after losing a trial and listening to a judge sentence my young black client to 41 years to life for breaking into someone's house and stealing CDs. Sitting in a holding cell, talking to an 18-year-old young black man who really has a really a child because he was 5'6 and about 135 pounds, talking to him about taking a plea bargain for 30 years state prison instead of risking going to trial spending the rest of his life in prison. Talking to someone in custody about the fact that his lawyer is the only person he can have a private conversation with on the phone. Because every time he makes a phone call and tells the kids goodnight, or tells his wife he loves them, or gets news about his mom passing away, or wants to tell them that he's scared about what might happen, every single conversation will be recorded and turned over to the prosecutor. That means he can't talk to anyone on the phone about the facts of his case, about what to do to get advice about what he should plea bargain and go to trial, because every single one is recorded. And we have to remember, this person has not even been convicted of a crime. The only reason they're in this situation is because they're too poor to afford bail. Sitting in a courtroom, about to start a trial with a young black man, and you see the 70 prospective jurors walk into the courtroom, and you begin to scan the room and count how many black people are there, and you see three potential black jurors, like, okay, I've got three, and then two are removed for hardships, they can't afford to be on jury service, then you have one left, you have to tell your client, I'm, I'm sorry, that there's going to be no one on this jury that looks like you. Not a single person. And there's a chance that this jury could be all white. And that is a terrifying, and I mean terrifying feeling. Innocent people, mostly black and brown, in nearly every county across the state are taking plea deals because they're too poor I don't have the money to afford bail. Innocent people who are black and brown are taking plea bargains to avoid spending the rest of their lives in prison. Young black kids everywhere today are being lied to by police right now in order to get them to confess to a crime they did not commit. And I can go on and on and on about what we see, but the driving force behind almost everything we see is racism and class. And you've heard the stats. You've heard stats about how many black people are incarcerated, about black men receiving sentences that are 20% longer than the average white man, and one, three men go to prison. You've heard all the stats, and I'm not going to repeat them. But particularly when it comes to Alameda County, in, in my backyard, there are stats you haven't heard. And one that I'll tell you is that our jail, Santa Rita Jail, is humongous. It's the third largest jail in California. It's the fifth largest jail in the nation. It holds almost 4,000 people. It is 48% black. Alameda County is 11% black. So you know, I've been asked to not be all negative in my comments, to tell you about some successes. We've made some strides. We've made things better. There have been some laws that have been passed. And I have to tell you, it's important to have public defenders and community-based organizations at the discussions because they're essential. You know, we're at the table, we're able to pass laws like SB 310 to allow people with felony convictions to serve as jurors. We've been able to pass AB 37 that this allows excuses often used by prosecutors to remove black people from juries. 
we've been helpful to pass AB 2542 Racial Justice Act. There's so much more. So much more that has to be done. I'm talking about bail reform, ending three strikes, ending LWAP, ending juvenile strikes, eliminating the trial tax, getting rid of the death penalty, increasing diversity on juries so black people have a say in the outcome of criminal trials, increasing mental health services in the community. You know, we have created a system, a system, and we put money, billions of dollars, towards policing, prosecution, probation, and parole, all systems of control, and we spend very little money on the group, the organization built to fight mass incarceration, to protect people's rights, the right guaranteed in the Constitution, the right to counsel. We do not fund offenders, and that by itself creates systemic unfairness. So, so I'm possibly the only public defender you'll hear from over the course of these hearings, and I'm obligated to tell you this part, and I'll tell you over and over again, the criminal legal system today is racist. It is built on a legacy of white supremacy. There's nothing just about it. It is not fair. It is not colorblind, and it does not treat people equally. It does not. So, you know, it, it's not just a system, of course. You know, most crimes have its roots in economic inequality, racism. So that means in order to affect the criminal legal system, we have to start outside that system. Before people end up in that system, we have to fund schools, fund social services, raise wages, fund child care, and so much more. But any path, any path forward towards true liberation of black people in America, for true reparations, we must include a critical evaluation of our criminal legal system and the will to completely tear it down, restructure it, reimagine it, so that prison, incarceration, retribution, class, racism are not central to its design. So yeah. many of said that slavery defined our nation before the Civil War, and mass incarceration defines our nation today. But we public defense have spent a lifetime fighting for our clients, fighting against mass incarceration, fighting racism, and we are a central part of the solution. Um, funding us would be revolutionary. Reimagining our legal system would be revolutionary. Reparations would be revolutionary. So thank you for allowing me to make these comments. Thank today. you. Thank you so much, Brendan Woods. I apologize um, for being so pressed for time, but thank you so much for your incredibly informative expert testimony. So last but not least, we'll go to Susan Susan Burton for her ex we'll go to Susan Burton for her expert testimony. Susan, you may begin. Or uh, allowing me am I um, oh, my microphone is muted. We can hear you, and we can see oh, you, you now. Can hear well. Okay, all right. Um, I want to thank the task force for um, holding these um, uh, hearings, sessions, collecting the testimony. What I can say, it's numbing. It's numbing for me to sit here and uh, listen to it all and having lived through it. So I am Susan Burton, founder of a New Way of Life Reentry Project, and the next slide is a, a photograph of my son. His name is KK. We called him KK. His name was Markay, and he was hit and killed by a police car when he was five years old. Uh, overwhelmed with grief, I began to drink and use drugs just to cope. You know, the police the police 
car killed him, the police never got out of the car. And the police station never, ever sent me a Miss Burton, I'm sorry, no type of acknowledgement. So I was filled with rage. Over the next 15 years, I was arrested over six times for um, uh, the use of a controlled substance and was um, stayed under the, the auspice of or the, or the authority of the criminal justice system for over 20 years. Uh, and what I want to say is I was a grieving mother, and I needed help. I did not need punishment. Next slide. Um, uh, in 1996, I learned that the justice system responded differently to black people, black women. Uh, I found a treatment center in Santa Monica, California, after them six prison sentences, and there I got sober. Uh, uh, my sobriety date is October 4th, 1997, uh, and I saw people, you know, get court cards and get community service and get uh, deferred to treatment and what have you, but that did not happen in South L.A. Next slide. So after being in treatment for 100 days, I was able to pick up my bed and walk. I started a new way of life reentry project one year after leaving treatment. And my vision was to build a home in South L.A. that could help women like me transition out of prisons and jails and have the space to heal and build power and opportunity. Um, I first started going down to the downtown bus, bus station in Skid Row where all of us get off the bus with what they call gate money, $200, the same $200 they've been giving to people since the 50s, uh, and um, we would try to make a life from there. Uh, but I would go there and I would pick, I, I would at, tell my friends that I had a place for them to live, and that started a new way of life. Today, you know, we have not only 10, we actually have 11 safe houses across L.A. County, and we've helped over 1,400 women come back into the community after incarceration. Next slide. Um, you know, I, 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 I realized that, you know, we needed to build a, a support for people as they were leaving incarceration. Uh, that, that all the money, our state money, our federal money, all our county resources was put on incarceration and punishing people. So, um, uh, with the friend, with the help of a friend, Dorsey Nunn, you know, we started organizing, we started leadership development, uh, with, uh, the help of Professor Saul Sarabia, we created a legal clinic and, uh, has established a family reunification. Uh, department within a new way of life. Next slide. Uh, we now have the 11 safe houses across L.A. County, and we're able to um, house about 70, 73 women at a time. Last year, we provided about 94 um, uh, reentry services for women. And what we do is we are, we have a holistic approach. First of all, we, we, we provide safe housing, uh, leadership development, legal services, employment services, family reunification services, 
um, just a whole host of services, just, you know, a, a real reintegration, real reintegration support back into the community. Next slide. Uh, and I just talked about the, the services, the pro bono legal services, the organizing, uh, and uh, we have actually six attorneys, three in uh, um, post-conviction relief, and three that serve family reunification. That's another big area, uh, the way in which while women or while men are incarcerated, they actually lose the possess you lose their parental rights, and they never ever know it until they get home, and they're trying to reunite with their children. Next slide. Uh, and then there's the reunification supports. Uh, in 2021, we assisted 127 parents, uh, and with uh, <clears throat> we're working to now bring those reunification clinics inside of the prison, inside of the jail, where people are able to keep their family rights intact uh, while they're incarcerated. Uh, over, uh, um, I, I think we've, we've reunited about 400 women uh, with their children total, uh, the time span that we've been uh, adding the way of life. Next slide. Uh, so we do advocacy and leadership de um, uh, development policy development, voter registration, organizing, and then the leadership development. In 2021, we held a Peace and Justice Summit that uh, we organized to uh, shine a light on the, the, the disruption of family uh, rights and to promote the restoration of families. And we also held a rally in Sacramento uh, to um, to, to bring this to the attention of our legislators. Next slide. We also tell stories. We have a testify uh, for, uh, that allows people to tell their stories. I believe that our stories are really, really important for people to hear. I've heard so much today um, that, I mean, it's just numbing and chilling, and I think, how? How does this keep going on? Um, but um, it, it, it continues to happen, and we're going to have to call. I, I, I hope this reparations task force will be able to call some of it on the rug. We'll be able to end some of it or all of it. Next slide. Um, er, on the earlier slide, you saw the book that I published called Becoming Miss Burton. From prison to recovery to leading the fight for incarcerated women. Uh, when I published the book so that I could tell the story of women, not just my story, but how we incarcerate so many women and women being the fastest growing segment of the criminal justice system. And that um, uh, book took me all around the nation where I had the opportunity to go in prisons everywhere. And what I heard overwhelmingly is, Miss Burden, will you bring a house to my state, to my to my city, to my county? When we leave prison, we have nothing. No one looks out for us. No one tries to help us, and we end up getting back involved in the same stuff. We need a house like that here. So what I did was I developed the Safe Housing Network, 
it's a network of uh, women, formerly incarcerated women all over the country that are uh, providing a replicate model of a new way of life. So thus far, we have 16 network members operating in 12 states. Um, last week, I just added five more uh, members to the uh, Safe Housing Network. We're also in uh, a couple of countries, Kenya, Uganda, and of course in the USA. Uh, the members receive training, technical support, and I actually fund them to start opening up the first house. We've been really fortunate here at A New Way of Life that we created a model and a brand that people are willing to support. And so I'm willing also to support other people to become leaders. Uh, uh, none of us can do this alone, and it needs to happen everywhere. Um, next slide. Is there a next slide? Um, these are ways that you can uh, uh, learn more about a new way of life or either get involved. Uh, I think that we are a really um, robust and cutting-edge model. And I say cutting-edge because our services are for the community and they're supported by the community. I've had the opportunity in my 20 years to uh, uh, understand different types of resources, from county resources, city resources, uh, state resources, federal resources. And what I've learned is that um, those government resources perpetrate the same harms on, on community members as the justice system does on its folks. So I've uh, elected not to engage in state funding, federal funding, city and county funding. I have a little bit of it, but it's really problematic. But I don't have so much of it that I feel like a slave again. I know what it feels like to work for eight cents an hour when what I needed was a place to heal. It's almost like the lashes on your back. And if you don't, go to work for eight cents an hour, another day is added on to your sentence. So it is a um, a system of slavery, and there could be so much more we need to be doing. Um, so, um, you know, again, I, I'm thankful to be here testifying. Uh, I think our model is a model that works that, you know, I, I say all the time, is freedom work. It allows people to become the best that they can be and be supported and valued, uh, uh, not moved as a body from one place to another, but supported to know their strengths, supported to know that, that, that they have something to contribute, and supported to find that contribution and give it to the world. I'll give it to the nation, give it to the children, give it to the community. Um, so uh, that's my um, presentation. I hope that um, it adds some hope uh, to what's possible uh, because, I mean, it's been hard. It's been numbing listening to what has happened to us over 400 years. All right, thank you.
Oh, and uh, one other one other area that I'd like to um, add to before I, I I take off before I finish here. One of the things that I've recognized for folks that are incarcerated, black folks that are incarcerated, you know, in addition to being, you know, tortured and incarcerated and punished, the opportunities that do is, exist, the few and far in between opportunities that do exist behind the walls, black folks are not allowed to engage in them. For instance, I have an employment. So, for instance, when I was in prison, I never, ever got to do drug treatment or go to the training class or, or you know, they wanted me to cut the line. Um, and I had to cut the line for eight cents an hour or spend another day in jail. But right now I'm delivering our employment readiness program inside one of the local jails. And as a black woman in the lead of an organization, I want to see black women participating in that employment program. But the selection for the employment program is done by the deputies, and they, uh, 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 black women are 8% of the people that have the opportunity to participate in that employment readiness program. And the employment readiness program gives you access to housing, uh, clothing when you're released, $2,700, just a whole host of stuff that they get. But there's a problem with what black people have access to even while they're incarcerated. So I'm going to end there, and uh, um, uh, I hope what I add, add something to the panel. Thank you. Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Ms. Burton, for your incredible personal and expert testimony. And I want to thank the, the panelists. Um, I understand we're low on time, and so we may not be able to have enough time to have a robust discussion and, and, and questions and comments from the task force. But I think it's you know absolutely important that your testimonies are a part of the official public record. And so thank you all for your in incredibly moving expert and personal testimony. At this time, do at this time do any task force members have any questions for the? Do the task force members have any questions for the members? For the members, I'm sorry, uh, Member Bradford, go ahead. I don't have a question. I just want to thank uh, Ms. Burton for all the work that she's done, and I think with all the presenters, we see a clear nexus of, of the, you know, the remnants of slavery and how it's impacted our criminal justice system, how we. Uh, incarcerate people, you know, our days in courts, all of those, you know, from drug treatment, and it, it's, it's just really telling, and um, I'm just moved by what I've heard today, but at the same time, I just want to give a bit of caution, because uh, clear these gang, uh, sheriff gangs do exist, but I would just add one bit of caution when uh, the young lady, uh, I think Miss Castle, identified Cecil Rambo as a gang uh, sheriff gang member. I grew up with Cecil Rambo. He wasn't a gang member as a kid in junior high school and high school. I know him very well. He doesn't have an identifiable tattoo on his body as a gang member. So I just want to put that word of caution out there that just like we don't want our black and brown boys to be identified just by association. Yes, he worked for Paul Tanaka. I, too, grew up with Paul Tanaka. I served 10 years on council with Paul Tanaka. Paul was an unapologetic. Uh, Why are we doing this? 
I just just want to just put that out there. Okay, thank you, uh, Member Grills. Um, I just want to thank all of the panelists. Your information was invaluable, and I just want to raise or lift up um, something that Susan Burton said toward the end of her comments, and she was cautioning cautioning us that some of the very services or programs or strategies that are offered by the system, um, in fact, create or cause more harm. And I, so I wanted to just caution us all because I heard a few of the presenters talk about evidence-based practices and encouraging the use of evidence-based practices. But those very evidence-based practices were designed with evidence primarily for white people, middle-class people, and they, in fact, don't provide the kind of supportive services that black folk need. They're not, they're culturally bankrupt and they're not contextually grounded and they don't recognize the history of racial trauma. And so we need to be thinking more along the lines of community-defined evidence practices, which are things that our community organizations are able to offer. Otherwise, we end up with legislation that like what Danny Davis put forward in, on the federal level for juvenile justice, where our community-based organizations are totally shut out of being able to provide services because they don't meet the litmus test of an evidence-based practice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess the last question I'll, I'll ask it to any of the panelists who weren't able to impart maybe some preliminary recommendations. Um, if you'd like, oh, sorry, if you'd like, if, if any of the panelists would like to impart any preliminary recommendations that they weren't able to impart in their testimony, uh, particularly around guarantees of non guarantees of non-repetition. Okay. So I'm, I'm facing some technical difficulties every time that I unmic. Every time I unmic, it might, it mutes me for some reason. So, anyways, thank you all uh, to the panelists for this excellent conversation. And this is just the beginning of uh, this is just the beginning of conversations around the criminal legal system. So, I want to thank all of the panelists who came, and I'm sure we'll continue um, being in connection with you all as we uh, move this work forward. So, thank you to the panelists. It's in you, Kika. <laughs> they thank you. <laughs> Blessings. Thank y'all. Blessings. Always. Thank you. So in the interest of time, we're gonna move forward. Every time I unmute myself, it mutes me again. So this this is kind of weird. But okay, so can DOJ introduce the speakers? Because every time that I unmute myself, it mutes me. Something is going on. Okay, I'm going to try to introduce the next speakers. Can the DOJ introduce the next speakers? I'm facing some tough technical difficulties, every time I unmute myself, the computer mutes me back. Chair Moore, I'm just pulling up the bios. Just give us one second, please.
Okay, let me try again. Let's see. Okay, I think we're good. Okay, so the okay? next. Yeah, I think so. Sorry about that. No problem. Okay, so the next panel is on anti-Black or African-American hate crimes. And the first witness is David Price. So David Price is, or he serves rather, as the Director of Racial Equity for the Civil and Human Rights and Equity Department for the City of Los Angeles. We'll then hear from Derek Young. Young is the Impact Manager of African-Americans and Pacific Islanders at the Bay Area Regional Health Equities Initiative. Then we'll hear from Cynthia Roseberry, who is the Deputy Director of Policy in the Justice Division of the ACLU. Then we'll hear from Catherine Hubbard, who is an attorney whose work focuses on litigation, challenging the criminalization of poverty, particularly debtor prisons and wealth-based pretrial detention and coordinates civil rights corps bail reform efforts in several states across the country. And then lastly, we'll hear from Max Markham. Max Markham serves as the Vice President of Policy and Community Engagement at the Center for Policing Equity, leading the organization's campaign strategy and government affairs work while developing grassroots policy advocacy in partnership with communities all over the country. So now, without further ado, I'll turn to David Price for his expert testimony. And you have 10 minutes. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Can you all hear me? Yes, sir. No, hold on a second. Can you hear me now? Okay, fantastic. Good afternoon, Madam Chair and esteemed members of the task force. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in today's discussion. Unfortunately, because of the time change, I will not be able to stay over um, for the question and answers, but I'm happy to share my testimony here and now. My name is David Price, and again, I serve as the Director of Racial Equity for the Los Angeles Civil Human Rights and Equity Department, where Capri Maddox is the Executive Director. Uh, our department's mission is to maintain and strengthen the city's diversity, equity, and accountability. Uh, we are focused on reducing bias and injustices while also leveling the playing field uh, through community engagement, through equity initiatives, and upward mobility programming. programming excuse me. Um, prior to joining the LA Civil Rights Department, I served as the senior field representative for LA Mayor Eric Garcetti. I oversaw the Mayor's Interfaith Collective as well as the Mayor's Youth Council, and I organized and delivered city resources to many underserved communities. Um, I worked directly with community uh, leaders and community-based organizations to create a more equitable and inclusive LA. Um, I am a native of South Central LA, and I uh, hold a bachelor's degree in government with minors in African-American studies and theology from Georgetown University. I also received a Master of Divinity with a concentration in religion, ethics, and politics from Harvard University. Um, and in my testimony today, I will first discuss biases and the impact that it has had on black Angelinos. Then I will focus on the contextual factors that contribute um, to the black community being uh, overrepresented each year as victims of racial hate incidents and hate crimes. And then finally, I will highlight the work that the LA Civil Rights Department has pursued in collaboration with community partners to eliminate hate and bias in the city. Um, as many of you know, Los Angeles is one of the most diverse cities on earth. Uh, we have a population of over 4 million people uh, from more than 140 countries. Uh, they speak uh, 224 different identified languages. 
And as such, race biases in the city uh, have historically been overt. They have been intentional, highly visible, and unfortunately, we still see these disparities in every sector today in Los Angeles. According to Timothy Wilson, he's a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, uh, we are confronted as people with about 11 million pieces of information at any given moment. However, our brains can only process about 40 pieces of information at one time. And so in order to compensate for this discrepancy, or rather this, this uh, uh, discrepancy, our brains uh, compress the decision-making process, which basically means that we make under-informed choices based on imperfect information. And over time, the result is bias. Uh, and while bias is a necessary survival trait, it's also ingrained in our interactions with each other, which as we know can quickly lead to a lack of diversity, single-minded thinking, discrimination, and hate crime. Um, today we see the lingering negative effects of bias and discrimination against black communities in many of these sectors, including edu education. The graduation equity gap for students of color has grown to 12.4%. Meanwhile, 17 historically black colleges and universities face bomb threats. In the media, black creators have to constantly fight for visibility and credit while they witness their non-black counterparts skyrocket in popularity by copying their work. Even artificial intelligence software is labeling black men as primates. When it comes to employment, close to 70% of black workers who lost their job during the pandemic have yet to be called back to work, and 90% of black women surveyed reported that their employers were inflexible when it came to accommodating their at-home needs. The unhoused youth in our communities are more likely to be black, and although government agencies do not collect demographic data on people when they're forced from their homes, what we have seen in our research is that nearly two-thirds of housing displacement, that's as a result of government-approved construction projects, uh, two-thirds of those housing displacements are proportionately, um, uh, disproportionately affect black families. Uh, in June 2021, the California Department of Justice uh, released data showing that California hate crimes reached their highest level in a decade. 1,300 hate crimes were recorded in 2020. Um, hate crimes rose against many communities, in fact, including Asian American and Pacific Islanders, Latinos, and transgender Californians. However, by far and away, hate crimes against black Californians were the highest increasing 87.7% in 2020 to 456 crimes targeting black folks. Data out of Los Angeles mirrors this state trend. A recent report by the California State University San Bernardino showed Los Angeles reported the most hate crimes among large U.S. cities in 2021. Black Angelinos were the most targeted group, rising 91% from 2021 to 20, uh, over 2020, which was already a record high in 2020. And so this amounts to 148 hate crimes in 2021 against the black community in LA, which has tripled their share of the population. Attorney General uh, Rob Bonta was correct when he called hate crime a crisis across the state of California. In Los Angeles, we are fighting this crisis using a multi-layered victim community-centered approach which includes education, outreach, prevention, and resilience. 
And so the LA Civil Rights Department, we launched the LA for All campaign in 2021 to promote resources for reporting hate and the values of inclusion, belonging, and solidarity. This campaign uh, is the largest in LA's history, um, running in 18 languages in over 42 ad spaces across the city. And just last week, we welcomed LA Unified School District into the campaign with 70 banners at their schools. Uh, hate crime reporting options included law enforcement and not law enforcement options. As part of this campaign, we are working with the city's 311 call center as well as the county's 211 call center to begin intaking hate crime and hate incident reports. Uh, historically, 311 is used by residents to report potholes, debris, and other issues that the city can handle, but now you can call 311 to report a hate act in multiple languages choose whether or not you want to report to law enforcement and be contacted with culturally appropriate services from partner organizations like the NAACP of Los Angeles. And family, this is essential for better tracking of hate in LA, as well as greater access to resources from the public. And as I uh, draw uh, near my time, I just want to leave us with these three thoughts. Um, because the work of this task force is essential in the development of a racial reparations program that addresses hate and hate crimes. Uh, and so this task force, I believe, must repair uh, the harms of past biases against the black community through a reparations program, reshape the public's perception and consciousness through education, prevention, and response that centers the victim and targeted community, and lastly, recruit community partners to align resources and programs to begin peace building, peace building and healing. Um, it is essential in LA and in California to make it clear that black communities are the victims of hate far more than we are the perpetrators, and that this hate has a common thread in racism, othering, and xenophobia. And therefore, responding to hate, it requires solidarity, it requires mutual support and resiliency, not just within communities, but among communities if we are to build an empowered, multicultural, and multi-ethnic society that everyone can call home. And the remainder of my comments can be found online. Thank you. Thank you so much, David Price, for your incredible expert testimony. So we'll now turn to Darius Young, for his personal testimony. Darius Young? Yes. Um, I don't know, can you see me or not? <laughs> uh, however, I'm here. Um, my name is Darius Young, and um, I am employed by the BARHI, which stands for Bay Area Regional Health Inequity Initiative. Um, however, um, I'm not here today not only represent my organization, but I'm representing myself and every other African-American man and woman who has ever been incarcerated. Um, I spent more than 17 years incarcerated in the California state prison system. Um, and upon getting released in 2012, um, I began working in advocacy. Um, I started off with the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, where I worked intently on criminal justice reform, not only in Alameda County, but both at the state and federal levels. Um, I then transitioned to another Bay Area organization called the Urban Strategies Council, which was um, set up by Angela Glover Blackwell, and I was the um, 
facilitator of the Alameda County Boys and Men of Color table. I also work for the campaign, the National Campaign for Black Male Achievement. And while at the Urban Strategies Council, uh, we won the My Brother's Keepers Award. And so those are all the things that I that I have did that has led me here. And I'll touch more on my background at the end. So what I do want to say is this. Um, I was supposed to be testifying under the school to prison pipeline and mass incarceration, but I'm um, in, got placed in this group. So therefore, I'm not going to go over a lot of things that have already been presented, but I will touch on them. So what we do know is, is that when you talk about um, mass incarceration, and um, mass incarceration was actually um, developed under the 13th Amendment, and I think people have already heard that. And from the 13th Amendment, you know, it states that citizens cannot be enslaved unless convicted of a crime. Um, intentionally targeted new emancipated black people as a means of surveilling them and exploiting their labor. Um, and in 1865 through 1866, you know, Confederate states, they quickly enacted a new set of laws known as black codes. Um, however, I want to point out this because it's relevant. Northern states also turned to the criminal justice system to um, e exert social control over free black Americans. Um, policymakers in the North, while they did not legally target black Americans as explicitly as did their southern counterparts, um, they did, you know, have various laws against suspicious characters, disorderly conduct, keeping and visiting disorderly houses, drunkenness, violations of city ordinances, and that made possible new forms of everyday surveillance and punishment in the lives of black people. And I think Alameda County Public Defender um, Brendan Woods, who has been in, instrumental in mentoring me, touched on that well. Um, next slide. Um, you can go one more. So I just want to point out some statistics that's already been pointed out. But for us, you know, we know that um, um, black men um, comprise, what, 13% of the U.S. male population, but nearly 35% of all men who are under state or federal jurisdiction with a sentence of more than one year. One in three black men born in 2001 can expect to be incarcerated in his lifetime compared to one in six Latino men and one in 17 white men. Black people are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate of 5.1 times greater than all of white people. Um, next slide. And we know it's not just confined to black men. We know that one in 18 black women born in 2001 will be incarcerated sometime in her lifetime compared to one in 45 um, Latinx women and one in 111 white women. Uh, we know that 4% of incarcerated women are black, although black women make up 13% of the female population. So where does this all begin? Next slide. Where does it all begin? Well, it starts with the school-to-prison pipeline, which refers to practices and policies that disproportionately place students of color into the criminal justice system. Um, what are some of these practices? Zero-tolerance policies. Um, the effect of zero-tolerance policies. 
Um, the fact is that 2.7 million K-12 students received one or more out-of-school suspensions during 2015 and 16 school year. Um, next slide. So one of the things that we do know is out-of-school suspensions disproportionately impacted black African-American students. Um, we, we know that only 8% of male students are black African-American, but these students represent 25% of out-of-school suspensions. Uh, we also know that only 8% of female students were black or African-American, but these students represented 14% of out-of-school suspensions. Um, and so we also know that in comparison, white students receive out-of-school suspensions at a rate lower than their involvement. And so um, what we are looking at is these desperate, um, these disproportionate based upon um, the color of people's skin. Next slide. Um, so we also know that 290,600 students were referred to law enforcement agencies were arrested during 2015 school year, and only 15% of students were black or African-American, but these students represented 31% of law enforcement referrals and arrests. 49% of students were white, but these students represented only 36% of law enforcement referrals. Um, and, and for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to move forward on my slides. Um, um, next slide. Um, so what do we know? Students who fail to complete high school are more likely to be in prison. And, and this, this, this is something right, right here that everyone needs to pay attention to. Among men born between 1975 and 1979, an African-American and um, African-American high school dropout, that's nearly, um, they have nearly 70% of a chance of being in, in prison by their mid-30s, mid um, and, and, and that's really, really high. Um, but what we also need to know is, is this, um, that in California, right, the number is 90%, 90% of African-American males who do not um, complete high school or drop out, and it's mostly caused by um, these policies and practices that have happening behind the school-to-prison pipeline, they have a 90% chance of ending up in incarceration. Um, the, the other fact that we need to note is this. 21% um, of African Americans with a high school diploma or GED will also go to prison in their lifetime. I myself fall into that category. Next slide. Um, so what, what needs to be stated in in this is that black women, they do bear the burden of mass incarceration. And um, it was a gentleman by the name of Arnold Chandler who, Chandler who created the life course framework for improving the lives of boys and men of color. Um, it, it was pointed out that um, according to a survey in 2018 conducted by um, NORC at the University of Chicago that looked at what percentages of African Americans have ever had a family member incarcerated, it was found that 40% of African-American women surveyed said that they currently have a family member incarcerated. The rate for black men was only 32%. The rate 
for white women was 12% and the rate for white men was 6%. And so what we're seeing is that African-American women are touched by incarceration more than any other group in American society. And I want to point out something else. Um, I put here 1.5 million missing black men. Now, this was conducted in a study by the New York Times, and it came out um, in 2012. And what that study looked at was a specific age group called the prime working age, which is 25 to 54. That study asked um, very, a very simple question. How many black men are either dead or incarcerated for every 100 black women between the ages of 25 and 54 um, for the country as a whole? What they found was very extraordinary is that only 83 black men who are not dead or incarcerated um, between the ages of 25 and 54 for every um, 100 women. Once again, they found 83 black men who are not dead or incarcerated between the ages of 25 and 54 for um, 100 women. So nationally, nationally, there are 17 missing black men for every 100 black women. When they look further at places like Ferguson, Missouri, for example, the ratio was 60 to 100. And so um, that equaled out to about there are 40, about 40 missing black men for every 100 women between the ages of um, 25 and 54. Now, one of the things that I pointed out, uh, Mr. Arnold Chandler, who developed this life course framework for improving the lives of boys and men of color, um, he did his own study. And he crushed the numbers for certain neighborhoods in the Bay Area, such as East Oakland, West Oakland, Visitation Point in San Francisco, and also um, Hunters Point. And what he found is that the ratio in those neighborhoods is 50 black men to 100 black women that are missing. And he found there are only 50 black men between the ages of 25 to 54 for every 100 black minute. So putting this all into perspective, and I think this is important, and it's important to the, uh, you know, having strong, vibrant, and healthy neighborhoods, it's literally impossible to have two-parent families when you look at those numbers. And though, then the effect of incarceration, we know that it lies within the school systems. And this, let me say that the school systems today even though we start to correct some of the things, they're still using measures, measures that really, really harm our children. And I can point to a local school this month that brought the National Guard or some form of military on campus to search their students. And that was, um, you, know, you know, unacceptable. So even though we've have, we have made great strides or tried to limit the impact of mass incarceration through our schools and schools and prison pipeline, they are still sending reinforcing messages that we need to be corralled when they see us. So I want to talk a little bit about my testimony. Um, as I said, I'm falling into one of those that did graduate from high school. As a matter of fact, I went on to college. I, I spent two years in community college and then went to Washington State University where I spent two years. But I came home, and at that time I was interested in going into law enforcement. In 1985, I was hired by the Richmond, California Police Department. 
and I was hired um, because Richmond at that time, they had a string of shootings, and they were doing things that were comparable today. They got sued, and they were under a consent decree, and they were had to hire, after, you know, more minorities. Well, I was one of the first classes that got hired under that. I went to the police academy at Los Medanas College, 40 recruit class, and I was the vice president of my academy class. Upon graduation, I started field training. I was in field training for six weeks before I was brought up on unfounded charges by my field training officer who just happened to be a part of the Richmond Cowboys, the group that the police department was sued for. And I had no IA investigation or anything like that. I was terminated, but not for anything that I did wrong. It was just that they said I didn't have it what it takes to be a police officer, even though I had weeks of field training left to prove that. My life took me up north to Seattle, Washington. And at that time, I was 25 years old. I walked into the federal government's um, building, and I looked at employment, what was on the wall. And what appealed to me was, wow, forest ranger, I can do this. I have a AA degree in criminal justice. I graduated from the police academy. I grew up in the outdoors. I was exposed to the outdoors. And I said, you know, I would love to do this. I went over to the forestry building to apply for the job. And when I walked in, it was a white man. He looked at me. And he says, may I help you? I says, yes, I'm here to apply for the forest ranger's position. And he looked at me and says, well, I don't know if you qualify. Oh, I do meet the requirements. It says that you have to have an AA degree and have graduated from a post-approved academy. At that time, I carried around my diplomas with me in my knapsack. I pulled them out, and he looked at me, and he says, assuming, I don't know what these things are, but we'll check them out. And that hit me because to him, they weren't diplomas. They weren't degrees. They were things. And at that point in my life, I start thinking of myself as a thing. Um, I was eventually convicted of a three strikes crime in 1995 in Alameda County. I was sentenced to 36 years to life by an Alameda County judge, African-American man by the name of Carl Morris. And then 120 days later, he, called, he recalled my sentence with the blessings of the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. And he said, you know, Mr. Young, I believe that you can correct your life, so I'm going to strike a prior. You're, not going, to, you're, you're going to spend a long time in prison, when, but you will get out. And on that sentence, I spent 17 years, four days, two hours, and 20 minutes. And I paroled in 2012. And from that point in time, I haven't looked back. But I say all this to say that, you know, people end up in the system. Unfortunately, fortunately, I was able to rebound because I was still raised in a community. I was raised in neighborhoods, but unfortunately, our kids today, we aren't raised in neighborhoods. We're only raised in hoods. And those things have been destroyed and dismantled by the war on drugs, dumping guns, crack cocaine, and everything else imaginable to destroy black boys, black girls, so that they can't become productive citizens in society. And I would say that the only way to overturn all of this, to help this, because it goes back from the beginning, from black codes when we were left out, locked out our ancestors, that we must have reparations. We must have reparations to correct the wrongs and, and start the healing process that is so necessary for us as black people and the country as a whole if we're ever going to get and live up to our values. 
So I do thank you, and I thank you for allowing me to give this testimony. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Janice Young, for your incredibly moving and thorough expert and personal testimony. Thank you so much. We'll now turn to Cynthia Roseberry. Dr. Cynthia Roseberry, you may begin your testimony. Uh, chair and members of this committee for inviting me to speak here today on this important issue. I come to you uh, with a background of two decades of work as a criminal defense lawyer for indigent people in federal and state courts in Georgia and Illinois. Uh, after having taught a misdemeanor and co-taught a death penalty clinic at DePaul University, after having spent five years as the head of the Federal Public Defender Office, uh, so Mr. Woods is not the only public defender you'll hear from today, uh, after having spent a number of years during the Obama administration as the Executive Director of Clemency Project 2014, and from my current position as Deputy Director of Policy in the Justice Division at the ACLU. My comments are, are my own and not ascribed to my employer. I chose to use the Ahmaud Arbery murder uh, as the lens through which I would give my comments today because they reflect that murder and the subsequent actions of the government reflect America's anti-black bias. I know you asked me to speak on hate crimes, and generally when we think of hate crimes, we think of people perpetrating crimes against another person based on their race. But I submit to you that there is an unbroken line of hate crimes from the tr treatment of first enslaved persons by America to today. The first space where we see that is this idea that there are spaces designated for black people. Uh, historically, we saw that uh, with enslaved ancestors through, of course, Jim Crow that mandated separation. But recently, we've seen that in the body of Trayvon Martin being seen to be in the wrong place, Ahmaud Aubrey being seen to be in the wrong place, Sandra Bland, Delando Castro, George Floyd, I could continue to name spaces where America continues to be segregated and continues to hold the idea that there are spaces black people don't belong. Uh, the, the segregation includes housing. There, it is no coincidence that we have the south side of Los Angeles, that we have the south side of uh, Chicago, that we have Harlem, that we have Detroit. These conclaves of African Americans and chiefly, although now being gentrified, in poverty-written areas are a result of the redlining that you've heard my colleagues talk about and other means of directing African Americans to particular places. There continues to be segregation in employment in my field, in the legal field. There was just a report the other day uh, from my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, where the Coca-Cola company has now abandoned its efforts to fully integrate its um, cadre of lawyers because there is a dearth of black lawyers uh, who work in firms. We've seen it in, la in uh, labor-intensive markets, and what that leads to is an inability to move gener generational wealth forward 
Uh, and we've also seen it uh, in the Veterans Administration where employment and loans, for example, were given to white veterans but not to black veterans to move uh, generational wealth forward. We see it in education uh, with legacy admissions, with anti-black bias testing results. Uh, and we've seen, as we've heard today, the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, we've, we see it in health, and the COVID um, pandemic showed us with great clarity the disparity in health. We've seen it in health in the prison healthcare system where healthcare is abysmal. Uh, the next place where we see this anti-black bias play out is in the black body itself. If it is not deemed as valuable or profitable, it is not deemed as worthy. Um, when, when it has been deemed, the black body has been deemed valuable in the carceral system, for example, the modern-day slavery that so many have talked about, uh, then it's, uh, it's used to profit from private prisons, not unlike uh, our enslaved ancestors' uh, bodies were used for profit um, uh, before uh, so-called emancipation. Um, and I know that California is called a free state. However, California participated in those fugitive slave laws. California allowed the holders of enslaved people to bring enslaved Africans into California to work during the gold rush. So despite being described as a free state, it has not been. Uh, black bodies have only been seen valuable for research. The Tuskegee experiment tells us this. Uh, there was COVID vaccine testing in Africa. And um, as a practitioner, I can tell you, as a legal practitioner, I can tell you that there's testing of new um, medical procedures in our carceral system as well. Also, black bodies have been silenced. The black codes have uh, said that we were not allowed to testify in court as if we are not to be believed. And in fact, in modern day society, even in the face of our complaints about mistreatment by police officers and by government, and even in the face of video evidence, we still find it difficult to achieve some modicum of justice. Um, we also see the anti-black um, crimes against uh, uh, the descendants of Africans in the spirit of impunity. Impunity for Ahmaud Arbery's killers had it not been for the release of a videotape. Um, uh, the killers would not have been charged. Uh, police officers who enjoy qualified immunity. On Tuesday of this week, we just saw the signing of an anti-lynching bill. Uh, and we know that between 1882 and 1968, we know of almost 3,500 black people having been lynched. And so years later, we are just seeing the first uh, bill that would address, address anti-lynching. And as an aside, in my death penalty work, I can tell you that in America, as lynchings went down, as the counting of lynchings went down, there was an increase of the death penalty use against black people in America. So our criminal legal system substituted itself in that vigilante justice that we know as lynching. Hate crimes uh, that are investigated by the FBI, uh, uh, while at the same time the FBI having been infiltrated 
by the hate groups themselves, the Brennan Center reported on the pervasive infiltration among the ranks of law enforcement officers and particularly in the FBI. This anti-black bias shows up uh, in the face of overwhelming evidence um, to the contrary. And then, of course, the carceral system has collateral consequences. The disenfranchisement of black people, the inability to vote or to serve as peers on a jury. Uh, the next area that I'd like to just mention to you is the dog whistle, uh, which I see as an anti-black, anti- or hate crime uh, perpetrated by many um, uh, members of the American political system and legal system and otherwise. We've talked today about Nixon's aide Ehrlichman, who admitted that the war on drugs was fabricated to disrupt black communities. Uh, we know that the omnibus crime bill that was championed by uh, current uh, president and former president Clinton um, was dangerous to uh, black people and has led to uh, the highest number of incarcerated people in the world. Um, we heard um, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton call young black men super predators. And I'm, I'm talking about dog whistles here. So while the, the actual word black men wasn't uttered, we all know what that meant. And then the use of Willie Horton uh, during a presidential campaign that uh, tanked uh, Massachusetts governor's uh, run for president was a part of the dog whistle. But we see dog whistle also in laws that are passed or reform that is stopped in part due to sort of this rhetoric about rising crime rates. And I would caution you uh, when you think about that rhetoric, because if crime rates uh, can be attributed to the stops that police officers make, and if we know that police officers are more frequently in black communities, and as you've heard earlier, more frequently arrest people, then the crime rate is being driven by those stops of police officers. And, and um, just tangentially, the idea of violent crime, we've seen this idea that violent crime is on the rise as a way to uh, stop reform of our criminal laws. Um, violent crime, too, is discerned by police officers. A theft, for example, can either be labeled an assault or a theft. If it, it is labeled an assault, it is a violent crime, and therefore violent crime is up. So I would caution you to think about that sort of dog whistle when you think about the need for reparation for black people. Um, in California, the governor has the power to grant clemency uh, in this carceral system. It is a power that he has exercised before, but the executive in California can provide some remedy in the reparations uh, scheme, although I would submit to you that clemency is not something that we should get in reparation. We should get that otherwise. It should be outside of reparation. So in this modern era, we know that uh, Kadanji Brown Jackson, for example, when she was uh, 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 being questioned by the Senate and critical race theory came up. I see that as an anti-black bias by members of the Senate against her. Um, and so we don't just merely see it in the space of hate crimes uh, that are on the books. Hate crimes abide and abound throughout the systems and have an impact 
on uh, descendants of African Americans. And those impacts are lasting. You may, you may ask why I'm talking about this when we're talking about the carceral system. And it is because the carceral system is the center of that spoke, uh, uh, of all of the spokes, education, finance, wealth, housing, uh, that has been talked about earlier. So this lasting impact shows up as broken families in our community. Um, you saw some mention of the New York Times study about the ages of uh, people who are mostly in our carceral system. I would submit to you that those folks are not just in the carceral system at the time when they should be working or would otherwise be working. They are there at the time when they would otherwise be procreating and bearing other black children. So it has an impact, in fact, on whether or not um, black people exist or continue to exist. Our communities are under surveillance, and particularly in California, that's how we get so-called high crime areas. This is a lasting impact. Um, I had the pleasure of co-chairing a committee with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers that looked at predictive policing and surveillance. The, the uh, study is called Garbage In, Gospel Out, that showed that black people and black communities are under constant surveillance. And that has an impact on us as a community. It harkens to, to the COINTELPRO um, era of, of, of surveillance of our people. And currently, there's a focus on um, organizations like Black Lives Matter and similar organizations. It continues to show up in health disparity, in mental health, the trauma that's associated with uh, racism, the transgenerational trauma that's associated with racism. And I don't know about you, but I know my rights. But if I'm pulled over by a police officer, I am traumatized. And I wonder whether I'm going to leave that situation with my life. The physical health uh, and uh, is also <laughs> a, a lasting impact of structural and systemic inequities in health care and health coverage uh, due to not being able to get good jobs that get health coverage due to uh, um, doctors not believing our ailments when we report them or not taking them seriously or not taking our health seriously. Um, there are some studies that show that there are disparities in health and health care among black people. There are studies that show that there's disparities in finances, in financial literacy and wellness and generational wealth, all lasting impacts for which reparation is needed. Um, we've mentioned education, uh, school readiness, teacher-student ratios, legacy enrollment in colleges, uh, the school-to-prison pipeline. I don't have to tell you that in some schools, if there's a shooting, for example, in school, every healthcare professional in the surrounding area is called to help some students. However, our students can walk through shootings and trauma-induced communities on their way to school, and there's a very different response to their trauma response. Um, and in the political arena, we have currently no black governors across our nation. This is a lasting impact of systemic racism and anti-black bias. We've only had three black senators in our federal system, and until two 2013, we never had two black senators at the same time. And then lastly, I'll offer to you that our culture uh, continues to suffer with the plunder of African artifacts, the erasure of African achievement, and the forbidding of the practice of African culture. We continue to suffer as we are flung across the diaspora. 
I thank you for the ability to comment today, and I welcome any questions you have. Thank you so much, Dr. Roseberry, for your expert testimony. We'll now hear from Catherine Hubbard. Catherine Hubbard, yes, you can begin your testimony now. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this historic and important hearing. My name is Catherine Hubbard. I am a senior attorney at Civil Rights Corps, a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging systemic injustice in the United States legal system, a system built on white supremacy and economic inequality. Today, I will be discussing the disproportionate financial costs that the criminal legal system has inflicted on black Californians and why these harms should be included in the conversation about reparations. A point I hope to make clear is that the costs that the criminal legal system imposes on black families are not hypothetical or indeterminate. Many are readily identifiable and quantifiable. Factoring these costs into a calculation of reparations owed is therefore feasible and necessary. Next slide. In 2017, working with the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, I filed a habeas petition in California's first appellate district seeking the release of Kenneth Humphrey from unconstitutional pretrial detention. Mr. Humphrey was a 63-year-old black man, a retired shipyard laborer, and a lifelong resident of San Francisco. He had been accused of stealing $7 and a bottle of cologne from his neighbor. Based on these allegations, he was charged with burglary and robbery, and a judge set his bail at $600,000, far outside his ability to pay. Ultimately, Mr. Humphrey would spend nearly a year locked in a cage while presumptively innocent solely because of his inability to pay money bail. Next slide. Mr. Humphrey's case was typical of how San Francisco's bail system operated at the time. While black adults represented only 6% of the adult population of San Francisco, they represented 40% of people arrested and 44% of people booked in county jail. Black people also made up approximately 38% of individuals paying bail. Over 99% of people who posted bail used a commercial surety bond, meaning that black arrestees and their families paid up to 5.7 million dollars annually in non-refundable fees to bail agents. Next slide. After the Court of Appeal granted his habeas petition, Mr. Humphrey was released from pretrial detention and the charges against him were ultimately dismissed. His case resulted in a landmark decision by the California Supreme Court striking down trial court's pervasive practice of setting money bail without inquiry into an individual's ability to pay or consideration of alternative conditions of release. But although his case will now benefit thousands of indigent Californians every year, Mr. Humphrey is still suffering significant consequences of his unjust pretrial detention. While in jail, he was evicted from his apartment in a complex that provides affordable housing to seniors. Upon his release from a residential treatment program, he had no housing in San Francisco and no choice but to move in with family in the East Bay. Although he longs to return to San Francisco, he has been unable to do so because he cannot find affordable housing. The racially biased criminal legal system took his home from him. Next slide. Mr. Humphrey's story of unjust jailing and its devastating financial impact is all too familiar among black families in the United States. Anti-black racism pervades our criminal legal system. 
Black people continue to be caged and separated from their families and communities at rates far outpacing that of white people. Nationwide, Black people are incarcerated at nearly five times the rate of whites, including while they are awaiting trial and presumed innocent. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.